Welcome to TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills. This is the TALC Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills, to get better outcomes, and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. Welcome to this TALC Talk, which is part of TALC Module 2.6. Kindness, Consent and Communication. How to make physical examinations comfortable, useful and time efficient. Hi, I'm Julian Tomkinson, a GP and medical educator from Manchester and I'm joined today by Anne. Hi, I'm Anne Thomas and I'm also a GP and educator in Manchester. It's good to be here with you today. Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the examination and I suppose many people consider that the examination is the most technical part of the consultation. And that the key thing is to know how to perform the physical examination skillfully and accurately. And obviously this is absolutely true. But Anne, could you share your thoughts about the importance of the consultation skills in and around the examination? Yeah, I absolutely agree that the technical skills you need are really important. But I'd also add that actually an effective examination requires intense and practiced consultation skills. If communicated or done badly, an examination can actually be really unpleasant. So a clinician's role is to put people at their ease and to build trust. Okay, that's really interesting. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, if done well, then a practitioner uses skills of rapport and relationship building, and this helps to make an examination more comfortable and and more effective. I think for lots of people, examinations can be quite daunting, even scary, and I suppose it's really difficult for anyone to understand the specific instructions that we might give as clinicians before or during examination if they feel worried or if they're feeling really anxious. And from our point of view, I suppose it's really hard to do something effectively, like, for example, a good examination of the abdomen, if someone is really tense, because it just makes it more difficult. I suppose at worst, examinations which are done clumsily or have not been explained effectively can lead to complaints. So with all that in mind it's quite interesting that very few of the consultation skills models contain specific reference to the examination which obviously forms part of lots of the consultations that we do. So there's quite a lot to consider here. It might be helpful to think about this systematically. So Julian what kinds of things need to happen before the examination to make it the most effective? It's actually interesting you said what needs to happen before because when we've when we've thought about the communication involved in the examination and we've we've done some teaching sessions on it, it becomes quite clear there are there are three stages to the communication involved in the examination and that they kind of revolve around the phase before the examination takes place. There's a great deal of communication that needs to happen well during the examination and then there's the communication and maybe the explanation of the findings which happens after the examination. Okay, so I think that's helpful because it allows us to focus on the different skills that we may need for each part of the consultation. Tell me more about what communication might be needed before an examination. I suppose the first thing is is just to explain that you want to do an examination and explain 
why that might be or why you've chosen a particular examination. One of the skills here is to actually clock the patient's face or just pick up on any vibes that an examination might not be appropriate at this time or it, there's a shock and that might need exploring further. There needs to be some kind of communication about what kind of examination is taking place and maybe what's going to happen in that examination. And it's just worth thinking about as doctors and clinicians, it's really easy to, to forget that when you, I, I remember vividly at, at, at medical school having my blood pressure done for the first time and my uh, clinical colleague, who's now a consultant anaesthetist, uh, pumped the, the bulb up to 300 millimetres of mercury and it felt like my arm was going to go up, uh, drop off and it was really, really uncomfortable. And actually, I felt that was quite shocking. So it's, it's just remembering that patients might not have had an examination done before and actually, are, are they... Do they need a little bit of explanation about what's going to take place and what to expect? Some examinations are particularly uncomfortable and we can talk about those in a bit more detail later. A really easy question here is, have you had this done before? Yeah, it's easy to forget that actually examinations that seem straightforward or everyday to us it might be very unusual or a first encounter for patients. So what else can help explain perhaps why an examination is taking place. It can be really useful to try and use some of the information that you've learnt already in the consultation to help improve the communication about the examination that you're doing. So it may be a, a simple comment like, it sounds like we're really worried about that rash, let's have a look. Or I can hear you really worried that that pneumonia might have come back and let's have a really thorough listen to your chest. Sometimes the examinations that we need to do aren't as obvious to the patient as, as they seem to us. So I'm thinking of examples like, I, I guess somebody who's got a really severe back pain, we might want to check for anal tone, or somebody who is vomiting blood, we may want to consider a, a rectal examination. And those examinations may come out of nowhere and be quite a shock to the patient. So it may be that we really need to take the information that we've learned and do some explanation about more specifically why we want to examine a particular area of, of the patient's body. I suppose here Anne, we're talking about, we're starting to talk about getting consent to do examinations. What are your thoughts about, about this? Well, it helps to be clear that you're seeking permission. A lot of people expect to be examined when they see a clinician and the bit that we've already discussed in detail about being clear about what is proposed in the examination and why it's being done, well, that then leads to an agreement about what's going to happen next. I guess some examinations are just more awkward for, for patients and, and probably clinicians as well very often. Um, what are your thoughts about that, then? So we've discussed that how in all examinations it's really important to explain what kind of examination they're proposing and why and in more intimate examinations the clinician might need to discuss some other things so for example whether a chaperone might be present and if they are who they are and what their role is I suppose what clothes they might need to remove or where to position themselves or lie on a on an examination couch what the sequence of the examination might be, all these details um, may be necessary to help with the examination. So that's 
That's interesting that you brought up the the concept of chaperones here. And I know we work together and, and feedback we've got from our trainee clinicians is that often this is, can be a really difficult area to broach. Yeah, that's some common feedback that we've gotten over the years. I've wondered if it's the word chaperone because I'm not sure that every person understands what this really means or what the role of a chaperone is in an examination or consultation. Um, so using simple language can really help clarify this when offering a chaperone. So I think everyone will be different in the language that you use and it will depend on you and your circumstances but I usually say something along the lines of frequently patients feel more comfortable with a chaperone present which is someone else from the surgery he'll be present during the examination and this doesn't normally receive too many puzzled looks but if it does then it's important to pick up on that and I'll usually finish that sort of statement with a a question such as what are your thoughts and sometimes people will ask questions about that particularly if it's something unusual or different for them and that's fine and then that's a really good opportunity to explore their thoughts around this and offer any clarification or put people at ease. Yeah thanks for sharing that I I, I really agree about the word chaperone itself Um, I mean my funniest example of that was a, a patient thought a chaperone was a pizza topping which sounds funny but it just shows you how we we assume that the words that we use day to day are understood by people and, and they're very often not i actually find that having a chaperone in the room with me can really help both both with the practical elements of of an examination but often just makes me feel more confident about doing a, an awkward or intimate examination i suppose here we should talk about what are the factors that make patients more apprehensive about ex- certain examinations or examinations in, in general? Yeah, so a really important question. Previous traumatic or troubling experiences can strongly influence thoughts and feelings about being examined. For women who've experienced sexual abuse at some time, a careless examination could feel very intrusive, even threatening. So seeking consent, explaining the procedure carefully and really remaining vigilant for any clues and examination is not welcomed it's just so important if you do pick up clues that someone seems more worried or more concerned about an examination that you're proposing then directly asking them what's worrying them or what's on their mind could make them feel more comfortable during the examination and ease some of these apprehensions and even allow the examinations to go ahead in situations where maybe they couldn't. These are really important communication skills and you've started to bring in some of the communication or the consultation skills that are happening during an examination there where you're checking that somebody's happy to proceed with with an examination. So before we move on to talk about the skills needed during the examination there's a couple of areas we should just pick up on yeah i wanted to ask you julian when you were given an example about explaining what and why you were doing in the examination you used the phrase um, i'd like to do a thorough examination of your chest so i just wanted to ask a bit about your choice of language tell me about that yeah thanks for noticing that earlier (laughs) Um, yeah, this is, I suppose this was something that, to be honest, I'd never really gave this any thought until a few years back. Um, and I heard myself saying, let me just have a quick listen to your chest or let me have a quick look at that. 
and actually, I don't know, some teaching I attended that pointed out that that was quite a negative, or in fact an accurate description of what I was going to do. And um, I mean, I've talked about this with people many times since, and I think often it's a, a representation of maybe feeling in a rush ourselves, or actually not wanting to inconvenience the patient or embarrass the patient, so I'm going to make it quick. But it actually, that being all very nice, really want to convey the message that you're going to do a, a, a good examination or a, a thorough or detailed examination. So I found I had to practice these skills and actually really tried hard to remove the word quick from describing my examinations and replacing it with, with the word good. They're such small things, aren't they, that maybe clinicians don't consider, but those small words can make a huge difference. And actually using phrases like a thorough examination or a really good look, well that, that reflects what you do, but it, it also helps build trust and it really enhances and improves your credibility. And, but it's just the truth, isn't it? So you may as well represent what you're actually doing. I think that's right. And it actually changes the way we feel about ourselves as well. I think that, that's really important because we do we are doing a good job and we are doing a good examination and we are being thorough very often and just by saying those words can just exa- it just builds on our on the way we feel i suppose occasionally patients say no to being examined what do you do if that happens well rather than i mean there's lots of reasons out there why this might be the case but rather than just saying okay it's best to explore why what, what thoughts are they having about it? What concerns or what worries? What are they fearing it might be like? And then taking some time to address those concerns. Another thing about doing any examination, but particularly intimate examinations, is to be clear about minimising interruptions. For example, closing and locking the door, um, closing curtains, You know, being clear that nobody's going to blunder in. These are really important things to consider, aren't they? And and being confident that somebody's not going to blunder into your room or interrupt you or, or you're going to find yourself exposed is, is a really important thing for patients to understand and feel safe about. So we've talked about the communication skills, the consultation skills in, involved before we start an examination there. And you, you started to allude to some of the skills that are needed during the examination on. Yeah, I think we'd started to think about um, the permission needed for examinations and whilst we're thinking about the consultation skills we need during the examination, then we're seeking continued permission for exams, aren't we? So that is continually picking up on those cues or those clues that we mentioned um, to try and understand whether you've got continued permission for examination to continue. So this might be the old classic of looking at patients. I remember a surgical consultant many, many years ago insisting that we look directly into everybody's eyes as we examine their abdomen. But he was right that actually if you were doing an examination that's uncomfortable either physically or emotionally for somebody, then you need to be really aware of the clues that that's the case. But also listening. Sometimes people will directly ask us to stop, so we need to make it clear that that's okay and that we're seeking permission throughout the examination. These are these are such valid points, and and those old pearls of wisdom, they were they were made for a reason, weren't they? About you know looking at patients and and responding to how they are. 
I guess sometimes people will will say, "Can you stop?" And I think it's really it's, it's really important to to respect that. But I suppose there are some situations where clinically, and I'm thinking maybe of an acute abdomen here, where a certain examination needs to be maybe uncomfortable, but it's it's really important clinically. And again, the key things here are acknowledging those issues, explaining why we as as a clinician would would prefer to carry on and trying to then move on with with permission with consent obviously stopping if if it's not if that permission's not granted um so we've discussed picking up on cues and clues there listening observing patients and even started to talk about negotiation here what other skills are needed during the examination Anne? So if we've used effective skills before the consultation, then we'd be hopeful that patients would know what to expect during the examination. But it may be that we've got specific instructions that we need to give to do an effective examination. So if if this is the case, then being really specific and clear with instructions, and I'm thinking about maybe having to move into a particular position, having to move on the couch or to remove a piece of clothing. Being really specific and being clear about what's needed can be really helpful. We've talked a lot about the skills of preparing for the examination and communicating during the examination. And I suppose we're now at the bit where we have to think about how we actually share our findings, what we found during the examination. So and what what issues do we need to consider here? I think it is very individual so it may well depend on who we're examining the purpose of the examination maybe the the findings from the examination so there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach I suppose I'm thinking that often clinicians when examining a child for example will provide a sort of running commentary for the parents benefit mostly of the sort of normal findings perhaps linked to a parental concern and that's That's usual and fairly easy to do and particularly easy if the findings are normal and can be really useful in allaying parental fears as you go. And that can be really time efficient in communicating normal examination findings if there's a lot to do. If there are abnormal findings during examination, then whilst the clinician is undertaking the examination, then they might use this time to maybe gather their own thoughts about what these abnormal findings may mean and they may not communicate them during the examination but take some time afterwards to process that and think about how best to communicate that to the individual patient. Yeah I agree with what you've said and I suppose again this was a, an area that I became I became conscious of one day actually and I can remember where I was stood and a patient had come in worried about their chest quite significantly worried about an issue with the chest and I hadn't I'd listened to the chest thoroughly but I hadn't made any comments about the chest at that time which and I hadn't found anything abnormal and I'd gone off to wash my hands and said get yourself just get yourself ready and we'll sit down and have a a talk about the results and I, I just was washing my hands thinking about what to do next and it was probably a good minute between examining the, the patient's chest and actually saying your chest was fine. And that, that really struck me that I hadn't responded to that patient's needs in that consultation and they looked really relieved and that was such an easy thing to do. I guess if if 
it had if the examination had revealed something more sinister then you know that that time would have been needed but the time i spent was unnecessary and, and could have put the, the patient at ease much quick much more quickly so that's really something about using the information that you've gathered in the first part of the consultation to inform perhaps the level of worry or anxiety around a particular symptom or the examination and delivering your findings in a in a uh, appropriate way that's why we often uh, tell worried parents as we go along because we're relieving their anxiety as we go and that's why they're there and that's how we can help absolutely and it, it's really interesting actually when you, you talk to the, the people that you see the patients that you see and often their concerns are or their expectations even revolve around the examination so they'll have a um, a concern about a particular thing and their expectation is that they need an examination to rule in or out that thing and actually that's the reason that they're there with you and and the findings of your examination are are actually the whole crux of the consultation and th- this is pretty common and and I think we often underestimate how how powerful the moment is when you you're undertaking an examination in a patient's mind so and we just talked about how important this area is. What other tips have you got for explaining examination findings? Well, we explored the skills of explanation in TALC Module 4, where we go into much detail about all the skills that are required, but it's worth recapping some important aspects here. So linking your findings to a person's worries or hopes or expectations for the consultation is just so important. But it's really important that with examination findings that you have, this may well change somebody's ideas and concerns and expectations. It's clearly really important to gauge prior knowledge of the conditions you might be discussing or the findings that you have, and also to try and use the right amount of detail in your explanations. On the whole, if findings are normal, then using positive language to reinforce the fact that things are normal can be really helpful. So I often will say, you know, that uh, I've examined your heart and thankfully the heart seems healthy rather than saying, um, you know, it's uh, there's nothing wrong or what we can't find, but actually saying everything points towards a healthy whatever it might be. Yeah, that's that's really interesting stuff. And, and I mean, I guess how do you... How do we actually know that people have understood what we've explained? So using the skills of chunking and checking, so giving a small amount of information and then checking in with the patient, checking their response. So I've had a really good listen to your heart and chest and everything there sounds normal. So now I'm wondering what you're thinking now. So we spoke earlier about the importance of of language here and just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, we discussed the language we use when we're planning examinations and that using clear, unequivocal language makes your message clear. So that is also important. Now, without labouring the point, which I feel that maybe we are, but I think it's really important, that I suppose contrasts me saying, I've listened to your heart and all seems healthy, compared to I've listened to your heart and I can't really find anything wrong. And what message that gives to the patient. So I've really changed how I use this really positive language to reinforce the normal findings. 
that's really valuable. There's some really valuable tips there, and I, I think you can you can also make things really sophisticated by linking it to those concerns. So, I suppose earlier on we talked about a patient who had maybe some worries about pneumonia, and you could say to them, "So I've had to listen to your chest, and everything is normal." And um, you could com- contrast that with you mentioned how worried about the pneumonia coming back again, and and the examination of your chest today is normal, and there are no signs of any pneumonia at all. This sounds clear, and you've addressed that particular concern from earlier in the consultation. So, what do you do next? What I found really effective at this point is 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 to say, what questions do you have now, or what do you want to know now? I really found that people's thoughts and worries may be eased or worsened or just different after the findings are shared. And so a simple kind of where are you up to now question like what do you want to know now works really well here. Yeah, it's it's easy to go down a rabbit hole here, isn't it, of explaining a load of um, findings from your examination that really the patient isn't really that interested in at all. So that sounds like a really direct way of, of finding out what's on their mind and, and moving the consultation on in, in an effective way. It seems really that explaining findings clearly, whether they're normal or abnormal, and chunking and checking can help our clinical reasoning too. As you work through your hypothesis, then your examination is testing that, and then you have more information to go on, and the patient's responses will also help you to decide about what to talk about or what to do next. So how much detail do you think we need to go into? Yeah, there's nothing more tedious than listening to a long list of normal findings that uh, somebody's not interested in. Um, I'd be guided by the patient. As we said before, it's really crucial to link explanations to the patient's thoughts and concerns. So that will tend to influence the kind of details and the level of detail um, that you would give in your examination. A good summary which encapsulates your findings from the first part of the consultation and links it um, perhaps to move the consultation forward is really helpful at this part of the consultation too. As you mentioned earlier that the module four essential skills for effective explanations and planning of personalised care has lots of great tips um, about using the skills you've been describing here. You just talked about summarising Anne and the first chapter in module one why are effective summarizing skills the engine of the consultation is is a is a really useful chapter to to look through and and many of the concepts there apply to the examination so speaking of summaries uh, i think this conversation's shown there's there are many 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 skills involved in the communication of the examination i find it really helpful to think about the before during and after sections of the consultation around the examination Uh, and over the years that's really helped me develop my own skills in this area i'm really passionate about consultation skills and i know know you are i've really enjoyed today's discussion and i think it's really highlighted to me that effective consultation skills lead to thorough and meaningful examinations and ultimately let us look after our patients in a kind and careful way. There'll be further written material available in module two chapter six. I I really hope that 
the conversation has been thought provoking. I know Anne and I have talked about this this um, section of the consultation many times and, and found it's really helped our practice and we really hope our discussion will, will help you too. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Anne. Really enjoyed that conversation. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.